You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. My name is Marissa Lopez, and I'm professor of English and Chicano Studies at UCLA, where I also serve as the Associate Graduate Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Admissions. Right now, I'm standing at the intersection of Pico and Sepulveda Boulevards in West Los Angeles. There's a lot of traffic because these are two of the biggest and most important streets in LA. Pico extends east from the ocean to downtown, and Sepulveda is even longer. It stretches for nearly 43 miles from the San Fernando Valley all the way south to Long Beach. So. Who are these major transportation corridors named after? Why should we care? And what implications does this hidden history have on how we think and teach about the 19th century? Joining me to explore these questions are... I'm Gabriela Valenzuela, and I'm an assistant professor of Central American Studies in the Chicano and Latino Studies Department at Cal State LA. I'm Efren Lopez. I'm assistant professor of English at San Diego State University, Imperial Valley. Together, using 19th century Mexican Los Angeles as a case study, we'll discuss how the three of us have been combining traditional archival research with digital tools and civic partnerships to empower residents to reclaim the 18th and 19th century black and brown histories of LA. Histories that have been willfully erased and deliberately left out of curricula. Histories that have the power to transform academia and help us all move forward into a more just and equitable future. If you've ever driven through West LA, you know Pico and Sepulveda as one of the city's busiest intersections. Both the streets also honor two historic figures, Pio Pico and Jose Antonio Andres Sepulveda. Pico was the last governor of Mexican California. He owned several ranchos that spanned from present-day Whittier to San Diego. Sepulveda was also a member of one of the state's wealthiest families, and he owned Rancho San Joaquin, which included what we now know as Irvine, Newport Beach, and Laguna Beach. Pico and Sepulveda were super competitive frenemies, especially when it came to horses. They raced often, and Pico's stallion Sargo always defeated Sepulveda's array of fine horses, which was not great for Sepulveda's ego. Determined to defeat his rival, Sepulveda spared no expense to import Black Swan, an Australian steed, at the end of 1851. Black Swan was as famous in Australia as Sarko was in California. When Sepulveda traveled to San Francisco in late 1851 to meet Black Swan, though, she was weak. The journey from Australia to California took its toll on her. Still, 
Sepulveda believed in Black Swan and remained convinced that there was something special about her, even if nobody else could see it yet. Reaching Los Angeles in advance of Black Swan and her trainer, Bill Brady, Sepulveda hatched a plan for the horse's arrival. He knew that Californios, elite Mexican Californians, favored Spanish-bred horses. Sepulveda hoped that Black Swan's Australian heritage and smaller stature, along with her frail condition, would fool everyone into thinking she was no match for Sarko. Sepulveda's strategy worked. Brady rode into town with an emaciated Black Swan. Pico was sure that Sacco could easily defeat her. $20,000 in cattle and $2,000 in cash were at stake in the race. Pico anticipated an easy win. His friends also felt that the bet was too good to pass up, and many of them risked their life savings on Sacco. Altogether, the bets added up to $50,000 in cash and a whole lot of horses, heifers, and sheep. The two horses were set to meet on March 20. 1852, leaving Sepulveda, Brady, and Tom Mott, Sepulveda's son-in-law, with just three months to prepare Black Swan for the match. Sepulveda couldn't risk anyone finding out just how fast Black Swan really was until the day of the race, so the three men trained her in the dark and built up her weight in the day. Meanwhile, Biko did nothing. Why would he bother training his undefeated Sarko when Black Swan was so obviously weaker? Finally, the day of the race arrived. The gamble garnered so much interest that people traveled from San Francisco, San Diego, and other cities in between to LA. They gathered at the Bayonion, the city's first hotel, and anxiously waited for the match to begin. Sepulveda's wife, Francisca, came dressed in her best, carrying a box full of $50 slugs, just in case her husband wanted to increase his bet. She also, reportedly, made a show of handing out $50 gold pieces to her servants and friends so that they, too, could place wagers on Black Swan. The Sepulvedas were just about the only people there that day who were confident that Black Swan would win, and they couldn't wait to show her off. Indeed, Black Swan stunned the crowd when she came out. Weak no more, Black Swan strong, healthy, and beautiful. Suddenly, the outcome seemed less predictable. Even more surprising than Black Swan's appearance, though, was the short, heavyset black man riding her. The crowd had never seen an African-American jockey before. Unfortunately, we know nothing else about him, not even his name. That's how completely Black Swan stole the show. The course was nine miles, four and a half out and back along St. Pedro Street. As expected, Sacco took the lead, initially. Black Swan managed to pull ahead on the return, and to the horror of Sarko's fans and the delight of the Sepulvedas, Black Swan won that day. She ran those nine miles in 19 minutes and 20 seconds, finishing 75 yards ahead of the formerly undefeated Sarko, blood flowing from her nostrils. An ecstatic Sepulveda cloaked a gold cloth over his winning mare and sent her home to his ranch in Ventura. The rest of the audience stood stunned. For many, the realization that they had just lost their fortunes on what was supposed to be an easy win washed over them. While Black Swan's win further enriched Sepulveda, it helped set in motion Pico's economic downfall. Just a few years after Black Swan's win, Sepulveda too was ruined. 
The drought that decimated Picos Ranchos crumbled Rancho San Joaquin too, and the amount of money Sepulveda spent in legal battles to clear the rancho's title over the years left him penniless. With few options left, Sepulveda eventually sold San Joaquin to James Irvine in 1864. By the time of Pico's death in 1894, land disputes with the U.S. government, gambling debts, and droughts that plagued his ranchos left the former governor destitute. Pico and Sepulveda died poor, but their horses match incited a racing craze in California. Black Swan's unexpected win inspired Californios and Anglos alike to emulate the stakes of the Pico-Sepulveda race. By the end of the 19th century, horse racing was the most popular spectator sport in California. As you've listened to the story of Black Swan, a few things might have stuck out to you. Why don't most of us know this history, and what can we do with this knowledge? These are a few of the questions we plan to tackle in this roundtable conversation about the public humanities. Uh, joining me is Marissa Lopez and Gabriela Valenzuela, and I'm Efren Lopez. Most broadly defined, public humanities means academics engaging the public through things like programming for a general audience, community-engaged teaching and research, and other forms of collaboration that are about more than just transferring knowledge. Why don't we start talking about Picturing Mexican America? What is it? So Picturing Mexican America is a cluster of public-facing digital humanities projects that the three of us work on, and listeners can find us on all the platforms. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. And it started as an ACLS-funded project with the Los Angeles Public Library to develop a mobile app that would use geodata to display images of the 19th century Mexican Los Angeles, which is a history that's been, I would say, deliberately erased in various ways. So I wanted to find a way to make people see and experience it. And the work on the app has now blossomed really under your guys' influence, Efren and Gabriella, uh, into a very active Instagram feed and community collaborations with different organizations, working with youth and public history that have been fantastic opportunities to connect our professional academic work as 19th century scholars with life in contemporary Los Angeles. And this kind of publicly engaged work is quite different than traditional academic work. And it encourages us to think very differently about our professional lives. So maybe you two can talk a little bit about the kind of work that you've done for Picturing Mexican America and how you feel it's influenced your own trajectories, early career scholars of the Latinx 19th century. In my own work, I always have this anxiety about what counts as literary. And that's something that I still think about even with projects I've done for Picturing Mexican America. I think about it, but that anxiety just kind of falls by the wayside. It's a lot of fun to go outside an, of an academic audience because this history reaches other Angelinos, but it's not just fun. It's also helping me as a scholar to build a method for how to compare these different fragments. Yeah, but the danger of the work is in its illegibility. So when I talk to people about picturing Mexican America or how I'm trying to develop a similar public humanities project on my own campus, people are always like, oh, this is amazing, that's great. But when we talk about it in terms of tenure requirements, they're like, hmm, does that count as research publication? Does that count as your teaching service? They don't know how to make it legible for a tenure dossier. And that itself, it's kind of a problem, right? I mean, 
fundamentally, if we're saying this kind of work is valuable, like thinking about narrative in terms of social media, thinking about what is a narrative, is it something that one entity creates and another receives, or, or is it something else? Can it be collective? I mean, these are big theoretical intellectual questions that are legible as rigorous. These are questions that we can write articles and books about. Uh, and we do always have to be thinking, how can I talk about this in ways that are going to make it legible to people who are in charge of evaluating me? But it's have to constantly ask that question puts a real check on us all the time. And even if there is a way in which this work can be legible by traditional metrics, how can we still do it in ways that are meaningful? When I think about working on picture in Mexican America, I'm doing almost, I don't know if I would say the opposite of traditional academic work like journal articles, but I'm thinking about how research can appeal to a broad audience. And the channel we're pushing it to is already something political, right? People can engage with the content in real time. Like they can immediately curate the content by retweeting it, by reposting it. There's all these things that can happen outside of just like publishing in an academic journal. There are really cool things that can happen with belonging, with recontextualizing history. Yeah, and I, I really like that word you use, recontextualizing. It made me think of a question that, um, that I think is really pressing. I mean, for anybody who's listening to this podcast at any rate, you know, what's the 19th century piece here? Or you know, why is all the work that we're doing, why is it specifically about the 19th century? And what's the value there? What's relevant for C-19 studies? I mean, we study the Latinx 19th century, but picturing Mexican-America is a recontextualization of that work, a, a crucial reorientation that helps us think differently about our professional intellectual lives. Yeah, I think there's this idea that knowledge is only academic, and as soon as we engage the public, somehow this work is no longer valuable. But Efren, you're talking about what happens when people get a hold of these stories on social media, and then the material takes on a life of its own, and it generates conversation. I mean, I thought of Lisa Lowe and Sadia Hartman. Uh, I thought about how Lisa Lowe tells us, right, that we have to read intimately across these different histories to think about how systems of colonialism, of slavery, of capitalism are actually really connected. They didn't just appear separately, right? We're allowing people to see that for themselves, to talk to each other in the comments. They're enacting Hartman's critical fabulation right there. They're telling these alternative histories about how they fit into the city. Also, just to kind of jump off of that, another thing that makes this sort of project unorthodox is how the material takes on a life of its own and we kind of lose control over it, which is cool, right? Unlike a lot of other types of work we do, where we shepherd the material through all these different hoops, through publication, et cetera. Yes, we do journal articles, but for Picture in Mexican America, we're saying here, what do you want to do with this? And that generates knowledge, not just knowledge as we're used to seeing it or appreciating it. Yeah, and I think that's actually really empowering that our own professional academic work and the work we do with Picturing Mexican America are not just to get tenure. That work is also for the communities in which we live. I love that. I mean, and that right there, that's the challenge to structures of knowledge and value. With this kind of work, we're not just delivering a finished product, we're curating and circulating archival material to catalyze the conversation and to create something collaboratively with our audience. That's a really different kind of academic labor, or, or it's a really different way of thinking about what it means to be a professor, what it means to be a scholar of the past, of the Latino 19th century particularly. And that's a difference that academia doesn't currently value or reward. But it has to, right? 
I mean, it's important that scholars today be more than just hermetically sealed brains. And you know, if the humanities are going to flourish and be relevant, we do need to continue to think about wider scopes, wider audiences. So maybe let's talk about how civic engagement and some of the other ways that our project and the research we're doing has engaged explicitly with the public. Yeah, there's really two key projects that we can talk about here that might be models for things that anybody listening to this podcast might want to take up. A Picturing Mexican America collaborated with an organization called the Los Angeles Explorers Club to produce a self-guided audio cycling tour of downtown Los Angeles called Daily Life in Early Los Angeles. And it really dug into the Mexican history of LA from the late 1830s on. And then we also worked with an organization called 826 LA to develop a series of workshops inspired by the archives of Mexican LA. Uh, but Gabriella, you wanna talk about the bike ride? Cause you did a lot of work on that. Sure. So the bike ride is a really creative way to engage public and cultural memory. To write for the tour, I had to envision people physically moving through the historical space. And that's different from social media where you just read it and then, you know, maybe share it with a friend. And it's different from reading an article. Yeah, and it was really important for us to have this opportunity to think about different ways of circulating information. Because the bike ride is a, a phenomenological experience of LA history. Like Gabrielle was just saying, it's one thing to read and it's another thing to experience the space of Los Angeles differently. And that's why it's an audio tour and why it's a bike tour. It's just like, uh, there's all these different ways that we were trying to alter space to put people in a different mindset for receiving these stories. Uh, it's phenomenological history, which is how I described it in a piece I wrote for Past Due. That's the white paper it's actually a very beautiful art book produced by Getty Industries, but it's the white paper that came out of a civic memory working group that uh, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti convened in 2019 that I participated in. We'll put a link to that in the bike ride in the show notes so listeners can explore for themselves. Yeah, and we'll also include some 826 LA links in the show notes. Uh, we'll link to the book that we produced with our students as well as some information about our programming there. 826 LA was just a lot of fun, right? We work with middle and high school students and ask them how they would imagine themselves in history and how they imagine the future. I think that can actually be a model for doing historical work much more broadly, just giving people cool stuff and asking them to speculate. I think that was the best part for me because the students were super creative, super brilliant. And I think that's a good lesson for us when we're in our little hermetically sealed pods. These brilliant and creative non-specialists can guide us to imagine a new world. First of all, I thought they were so impressive, so smart, so much fun to work with. And if we're talking about how when we engage the public, our work is not considered rigorous. Well, these students, I worked with them on visualizing space and comparing contemporary maps to 19th century Mexican diseños. I had them make their own personal maps of LA and those are very much a form of their own history making. Efren use this word, speculate. History came alive for them when they were speculating, when they were drawing their own space, when they were curating themselves. And if that's not rigorous, quote unquote, well then rigor is just another way to deliberately disempower people. I totally agree, Gabriella. The students drew and they also wrote poems. And um, for the workshop series, uh, we worked with a local artist and actor, Javi Moreno, and he did uh, this creative writing workshop where the students wrote poems about themselves. And these poems revealed lots of interesting things about the relationship between self, space, and time. For example, let's listen to Yaretsi read her poem. 
I am the owner of a little doll named Tessie, and those little girl makeup kits that I never wanted to ruin, so I was always very careful on taking the eyeshadows out evenly. I am tamarindo and chamoy, which irritates my stomach if I eat too much, but I still eat it anyways because it's because the taste is amazing. I am that little baby girl who was super curious and always moving around that one day I fell and got cut by a glass piece in the face, which left a scar on my cheek that I still have, but I like because it's unique to me. I am singing in the shower by Becky G. And porque tú eres perfecta sin el 90, 60, 90. Después al mundo yo darte la vuelta um, by Camilo every second of the day. I am the relaxing, free-spirited, and welcoming Venice Beach, as well as a playful, always filled with laughter, poems, recreation, center park. I am the niece of my tia who flipped over on the donut floaty when we went to raging waters in the middle of our right and lazy rivers. I am the ayari because sometimes I laugh too much and I just can't stop. I am American and from Oaxaca, Mexico. I am Yuretsi. What's interesting to me there is how Yuretsi historicizes herself and how she imagines herself in relation to these kinship networks. I also like how she imagines her own body as an archive. And of course, how she's so playful with bilingual words and sounds. Rami does something similar to Yuretsi, situating himself historically in relation to his family, to other bodies in space across time. Here's Rami. I come from the Gross family, the Snowyman family, the Vivas family, and the Sachin family. I am Rami Gross, and I am proud to be me. Finally, here's Angel. I was particularly interested in how Angel used his poem as a way to claim ownership of LA space and how he positions himself as an observer of other people in space. My name is Angel. In my Los Angeles, I see houses, trees, vehicles. In my Los Angeles, I hear bird noise. In my Los Angeles, I smell food cooking. In my Los Angeles, I taste air, water, flowers. In my Los Angeles, I feel exhausted, hot, and cold. Are these heartbreaking works of staggering genius? No, but they're the seeds of something. These young writers are rooting themselves, understanding the layered nature of shared space. So back to this question of what was literary about this project, we're catalyzing the creation of new work in the world, right? And when I first started picturing Mexican America, that was an open-ended research question for me. Um, what happens when you give people stuff? Part of the value of what we do is not just interpretive and didactic, it's catalyzing the creation of new knowledge. And so the student's poetry was really mm, uplifting. You know, we were doing this in the summer of 2021, like in deep pandemic times in Los Angeles during the summer of racial reckoning. And it was so beautiful and exciting and amazing to watch these young people create something new and empowering for them. Working with the 826 LA students on their alternative speculative histories brought home to all of us the multiple genres history can embody and that multi-generic, interdisciplinary, digital, and publicly engaged historical narratives can change the world. That the 19th century has continued relevance and power that manifests in everyday, sometimes unexpected ways. But we close with something that you actually might expect, something traditional that nevertheless points us towards a future that breaks radically with tradition. 
We close with a poem by our colleague at UCLA, the British Guyanese writer Fred Degar, who first learned about Black Swan and the unnamed jockey who rode him to victory from our bike ride. Here's Fred explaining why he found the story compelling enough to write a poem about and how he saw the jockey story resonating with the protests of 2020. Yeah, I, I, a lot of, I've always been um, a writer of history and history. So your, your um, library project, well, I love the fact that it's a recovery for the community. And I felt that story was buried in it. And in that story was somebody unnamed, especially because it's all about street names, find the plaque, ride here, stop. And I felt all the places you named that had markers, here was someone whose ghost was flying through and there was no name for him. So immediately I latched onto that absence. It was like a vacuum that was begging for articulation, actually. So that's the first thing. And that didn't go away. That never changed, no matter how much I read about it. I went online. I saw the other things about it. It still remained almost a space opened up in my head and heart on behalf of his slight in history. Mm -hmm. So that continued and that didn't so i had to answer it actually i had to say okay let me let me write into that vacuum which is how so much of the historical work that i've enjoyed reading and doing appears to do when the victor finishes speaking it's this emily dickinson thing of you know just out of the corner of your eye because you avert your eyes and you write at a slant the very important omission is present I mean, it's exactly if it were just COVID-19. When I say, I see you, say your name, it wouldn't have the gravitas it has for me, hearing it uttered by the demonstrators in the streets who took up the call. It was no longer a black person died, look after it, black people. It was someone died and we are outraged by this death. It's a slight against us. And that's what I love about the protests being so widespread is that they're saying, say his name. And if you were to shine, look at the body saying it, there weren't bodies who you felt were charged with the responsibility of, of saying it. And I love the way that that's widened out, the protest has widened out to become a civic and it's just become a much, much wider thing that now can't be ignored. And everybody I've been listening to and reading, they've all been saying Angela Davis um, for starters, all said that this moment was different to anything. If she says that, you know it mis means something because she's been through so much. But she said that. She said that she's um, she hasn't seen this before and that um, for years people were asking her about their struggles and saying how they felt, you know, dis 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 disenchanted by the fact that nothing is changing. And she said, look, there may well be a moment when things come together, so persevere. And sure enough, she said, this is the moment for her in her lifetime. And so I think we, it is special. We are living through it. And the, the writing of his story from 1852 just felt like this is not something that's out of nowhere. This is its history, and it goes back to slavery. It goes back to the idea of beings who deserve everything and non-beings who will be charged with providing that for them, that comfort. And I, you know, so yeah, it, it's one of those things where I feel this moment is calling, everything is refracted from history back at the present in any way. I, I feel it's a conversation with the present. I wanted the poem to do that in a kind of obvious way and make that link for someone. If I'm not in the room, 
they'll see the link in the poem to the present. They'll say, oh yeah, the protests. It's really talking about the protests. Absolutely. The poem is about the jockey who rode Black Swan to victory. The Black jockey who was so noteworthy that reports of the race describe how the crowd gasped in shock when they saw him, but nobody thought to record his name. The jockey is lost to the archives, but he doesn't have to be lost to us. Fred's poem illuminates the anonymous 19th century Black jockey's residences into the 21st. It makes contemporary Black art from the archival traces of an old Brown story, and it shores up the Brown commons. Fred's poem suggests the transformative power of the kind of publicly engaged, narrative-based, digital archival work we're doing. When Black and Brown folks excavate the past together, we become an unstoppable force for future change. And now, here's the incomparable Fred Degar closing us out with For the Unnamed Black Jockey. For the unnamed black jockey who rode the winning steed in the race between Pico Sarko and Sepulveda's Black Swan in Los Angeles in 1852. If we can name him, then no one can blame him for the glancing omission by his times. To name him saves him from attempts to erase him from the history that he framed. He jockeyed black swan, rider and horse, won against wild favorite Sarko, owned by Pico, poor old Sarko, destined for victory, so trained leisurely. Now, by contrast, the black jockey worked black swan in secret at night, hidden in stables by day. Imagine the shocked crowd when the black jockey showed up with the best looking thoroughbred. Fortunes placed on Sarko suddenly looked shaky. Modest bets on black swan made fortunes. Asias la vida. Which brings me to a name for the black jockey who made black swan champion for Sepulveda. Is King Midas too much, or Hannibal who crossed the Alps by elephant, or conquering Caesar, or Charlemagne, or some famous face embossed on a coin, or general on a plinth, under a horse? Take your pick. And remember that day in California when a black jockey nobody bothered to name won the biggest horse race in the West of that era. A black tradition of riding thoroughbreds began. If I could see him in some lucky audience with the long gone and unjustly dead, this is what I would tell him. Given the chance to set things straight and bring him peace, regardless of whether they recorded your name or recorded you proper fame and reward, to feel the free power of a horse at full pelt and be the one who shared that freedom, to keep it in your heart for the rest of your days, no matter they forget to grant you your name. I name you now to correct back then, to put to rest the hurt of history that saw you as stock. I see you. Say your name. What you did brought your horse fame and left you as a mere footnote. You ride once more with your name in the thoughts of your audience, who see you and the horse, both. You lead by 75 yards at the finish line, and the victors toast the horse 
and both your names, and the losers curse you and your fame and blame your skill for their ruin and the horse for winning. Thanks to Infinity Poet for your effort in wobbly rhythm and dodgy half rhyme to give me my due, not given me so long ago at my most glorious, a slight that hurt. You make me feel like a borrowed library book somebody never bothered to return to its nook. The date stamped on me is so old, I'm appalled. The library went south, pulled down for a mall. You found that book and found me in a thrift store or at a country fair antique bookseller. Now you want to give me what is overdue, more apt for your time than mine. You want to settle the score that all the newspapers and reports about the greatest race fail to do in prose. Grant me dignity by saying my name in a sport that's all feel, touch, communion with a horse. It's so long after my time, I do, don't care if you name me. Keep it simple, not double barrel. For I was never one for heirs, never quarreled. I lived to ride, lucky to have the ride of my life. Do what you have to do to satisfy your time and be sure to return me to my proper place in history. Make sure people can name, can say the name that you pick for me. I don't want to lose face with my friends who will joke if they think it's funny. Where we remain, there's no end to what we say, what we do, and no ink that lasts long enough to make amends. Thank you so much for listening. Y porque se necesita un pueblo, también estamos muy agradecidos a... John Paul Christie and everyone at the American Council of Learned Societies, Amy Gilchrist and the Los Angeles Explorers Club, Ani Boyajan and Rose Napka at the Los Angeles Public Library, Cecilia Gamino and Marina Aguayo at 826LA, Javi Moreno for his Los Angeles, Yvonne Condes for guidance and inspiration, Kelly Vrigotti for recording assistance, and Fred Degar for all the beautiful words. There aren't enough synonyms for thank you to express our gratitude to Steve Merrill, Lexi Quint, and the design students at General Assembly for their help building the Picturing Mexican America app and website. Pico and Sepulveda was recorded by Felix Figueroa and his orchestra in 1946. Additional music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Links to the resources and projects we mentioned, including the app, a beta version of which is available for testing, can be found in this episode's show notes. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19 Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.